Welcome to Law & More, the podcast from award-winning Hong Kong law firm, Bose Cohen & Collins, that explores issues in the legal world and beyond. In this episode, our senior partner, Colin Cohen, speaks with South China Morning Post columnist Cliff Buttle. Having been with the Post for 27 years, Cliff is ideally positioned to offer his thoughts about the newspaper's adjustments to the digital age, the challenges posed by social media, and how he and his colleagues have covered major news stories, including the 2019 protest and the coronavirus pandemic. Stay tuned. Cliff, welcome to Laura Moore. Thank you. Tell me, what's been keeping you a little busy this week? This week, I've been doing a bit of research into the history of the South China Morning Post. So yes. that, that is one of my many projects at the moment. And before we go into these sort of weighty matters, such as what you're doing with the South China Morning Post, the history, the media landscape in Hong Kong, let's go back in time and look at your early career and how you got started in journalism. You were a court reporter at the Old Bailey in London for the various agencies. What are your memories of those days and anything of great interest, notable cases? Well, what what happened is that I decided that I wanted to be a journalist when I was at school in London, but I wanted to be a sports reporter. I I had this idea I would be covering Arsenal. The problem is you needed to have a foot in the door, right? At that time, particularly, experience counted for more than qualifications. And the first job that came along was at the Old Bailey. And I knew nothing about the law, nothing about courts. I went along as a, a rather green a 17, 18-year-old, and I had my interview in the press room there, uh, which was next to the cells. And after the interview, they took me upstairs and they put me in court number one, which anyone who's been to court number one at the Old Bailey knows that it's an awe-inspiring historic court. And there was a murder trial going on and they just sat me down with a notebook and a pen. Defendant was giving evidence and they said, well, let's see how you do. And then the next day, taken down to Clerkenwell Magistrates Court, There happened to be a good story there that day, and I ended up with two paragraphs in the Daily Telegraph. And that was it. I was hooked. I just found it so exciting as a young journalist covering those cases in the 80s and 90s. I remember when I was a trainee solicitor going into the old Bailey to doing a fraud case in court number one, and the facilities are terrible. (laughs) The acoustics are not great. And you sit there, and but you feel something there. And everyone, as you said, are overpowered by that fabulous courtroom. You could imagine one of the judges putting on the black cloth and hanging you. (laughs) Well, Well, anyway, you enjoyed your career, but what brought you to Hong Kong? How did you arrive on these shores in, I think it was 93? No, 94. 94, 94. 94. Well, I'd been at the Old Bailey for 12 years and I, I was looking for a challenge. It was my 30th birthday and my wife, as she is now, said to me, how does it feel to be 30? And I said, well, I feel that something has to change. I didn't mean her, I meant <laughs> something else. I had a call from uh, a journalist on the Evening Standard who said the South China Morning Post were looking for a court reporter and maybe I would be interested. I didn't really know where Hong Kong was at the time. I had to go and look it up. But this was the the sort of adventure I, I was looking for. I got the job and I came out here with a suitcase, never been here before, dropped it off at the hotel, went into the newsroom, and I've been there ever since. And what was your first task? I was hired as the district court reporter. Doesn't sound very glamorous. But for me, being in Hong Kong, entirely new experience. Obviously, the courts were somewhat familiar, the wigs and the gowns and similarities with 
what I had seen in the UK, but there were also differences. So I I was starting out at the district court and coming from a very competitive environment in in London, I, I was really looking to milk those district court cases for everything I could get out of them. And I was looking for front page stories from the district court. Anything stands out in in the district court at that time? Or there were a couple of cases I remember in the district court in that time, fraud cases and other ones. Well, when I think back, I'm just trying to remember, I was only at the district court for three months before I moved to the high court. It's not so much the cases themselves I remember as the environment. I found that the legal profession in Hong Kong was much nicer to journalists than in London. In, in London, there were some very nice ones, very friendly, but they were a little standoffish. I was, I was rather surprised when I arrived at the district court. I was going into one of the courts in the afternoon and some of my colleagues in the Chinese language press said, this judge, she will invite you into her chambers after the hearing. And I said, don't be silly, judges don't do that. They don't invite the media into their chambers when the court adjourns. But they were right. The clerk of the court came over to the press bench when the court rose and and said the judge would like to see me. I just arrived from the UK and I went in to see the judge and we had a very nice chat just talking about Hong Kong and what it was like and what it had been like in London. I really welcomed that and I found that the lawyers here were much more willing to engage with the media, which was nice. Because I recollect at that time, the SCMP had a natural court page whereby you go to that page and you read all the cases. Yes, um, I, I got it abolished. <laughs> <laughs> was there any reason why? <laughs> yeah, I felt it was a little old fashioned. I know that it was popular with some members of the legal profession. I mean, we used to have case numbers and this sort of thing. But from the perspective of a journalist, I felt that it, this was artificial. I felt that the court stories are good stories. And they should compete with other news stories for the more prominent parts of the news. And if you have one page dedicated to the court stories, you have a quiet day. And so you have to publish stories which are rather weak to fill the space on that page. If you have a busy day, then you you lose some good stories or you have good stories that go on that page when they really should be on page one or page three. So I wanted those stories to be able to compete in their own right rather than having a dedicated page. So you were here, you were part of the team, or you were a chief court reporter, and we're coming up to 1997, mm. and after 97, there were lots of constitutional cases. Does anything stand out that you were reporting on in those difficult times, the, the handover? Any For me, the handover itself wasn't the real story. As somebody who was in the courts covering legal affairs, I felt that was more of a colour story. I mean, I stood out and got very wet trying to cover the meeting between Tony Blair and Jiang Zemin on handover night. The real story, I, I feel, came later on in the cases that followed the handover. And the use to which the basic law was put. Basic law, of course, didn't come into force until the handover. And we very quickly started to see people going to court and relying on the protection that the basic law provides for human rights. The right of abode cases really were a landmark. For me, in seeing the way in which the law could be used to defend people's rights, and I I will never forget the Court of Final Appeal ruling in January 1999, the first ruling on the basic law on the right of abode, which proved to be very controversial, but it was a historic ruling. You saw the courts of trying to to lay down some of its own boundaries to to clear up some of the issues that had caused concern. This was a, a very exciting time to be a court reporter. 
I also remember in the South China Morning Post used to report the Privy Council cases quite a lot. And then the Court of Final Appeal came in and you've seen the courts in the Privy Council and the Court of Final Appeal. Your views on the court, has it performed the unusual aspect of a single <laughs> judge from overseas and dealing with the Court of a Final Appeal? I think we have seen some at times quite courageous judgments from the Court of Final Appeal. What well, One of the objectives, I know talking to Andrew Lee, the, the Chief Justice at the time, was for that court to establish itself as a court of quality, a court that would be recognised in the common law, that would make judgments, uh, that would be referred to elsewhere in the common law world. And I, I think that it was achieved. And the foreign judges, the overseas judges, have an important part to play in that. I mean, of course, we can we can all, whether judgment should have gone this way or that way and whether we're happy with them or disappointed with them. But I, I think on the whole, given that this was a new court, an unusual court, given the presence of the overseas judge. So I, I think it, it has played a very significant role in developing Hong Kong jurisprudence since the handover. You've had a number of roles at the South China Morning Post. You know, you're no longer a court reporter. When did you stop? What made you change from court reporter? What happened? Because you were acting chief editor at some time as well. Yeah, I've worn a number of different hats. Well, if you include my time in London, I was a court reporter for 18 years. So when an opportunity came along to do something different, I felt I should take it. And I was offered the chance to move to what was called the focus section back in those days. We have a focus page these days in the newspaper, which is a bit different. But this was a section which included articles on the big issues of the day. So that was my move out of court reporting, opportunity to, to try something different. And I went from that to be a news editor, the news editor during SARS, and then on spent a couple of years writing editorials, which I very much enjoyed and still do from time to time. Then as deputy editor for six years, I, I had almost a year as acting editor-in-chief, which was quite an experience. And I've been special projects editor now for, well, what is it, nine years, which is a title which it doesn't mean very much. But the great thing about it is that you can do many different things without having to change your title again. So you're in that time, I looked after the culture team. I represent the SCMP at the FCC. I do a bit of emceeing, write my column, chip in with editorials, look after graduate trainees. So a number of um, different roles to play as yes, a senior uh, editor. Let me talk about some aspects of the press. The digital revolution, I yes. call it that, I think it's had a massive impact on the newspaper industry. And has it been difficult for the SCMP to adapt and survive? Because I read the Times every day, now on my iPad. Mm -hmm. I subscribe to the SCMP and I read it on my phone, but really I enjoy the piece of paper in my hand as well. Has it had this impact on the industry, the digital revolution or not? Oh, very much so. It's been a huge challenge for the media industry, which has been transformed as a, as a result of the internet and uh, social media and the many different platforms now available for publishing. At the SCMP, we had a website up in 1996, which was pretty early. I remember filing stories to scmp.com in the 90s when the, the website was launched. But it, it's taken us about 20 years to make the most of it, really. And uh, it, it's only in recent years that we have seen a complete transformation in the way in which we go about news gathering and publishing of news, distributing of news. We have gone from being a very traditional Hong Kong newspaper read almost exclusively by Hong Kong people to being a modern digital media organisation that is read all around the world. 
and that's the model everyone is following. It's amazing nowadays. I pay for my print subscription. I also pay for my digital extra 700, 800 bucks on top of the 2,500. I think that's what I pay. And it means that straight away you get on your phone the latest breaking news. Carrie says this, this is happening. Court decisions are coming down. It's, it's a continuous feed of news coming into you all the time. This is the new era we're in. Has that had an impact upon, has that made you profitable? The SEMP is a SEMP's head above the water at the moment? Oh, our head's above the water, certainly. But we've gone through a process of new owners, Alibaba, who invested in the newsroom. We saw the newsroom grow. So we saw bureaus opening in the US and, and elsewhere. The paywall came down for a number of years, which meant that we were able to really grow our readership. It's back in place again now. I've seen the South China Morning Post undergo this transformation from being in some ways quite an old-fashioned orientated newsroom to one which is really making use of all the tools that are available to us these days to distribute our, our news and ultimately to make some money and keep our head above water. I'm interested also in how you cope with social media. Social media now is everywhere. It's mm -hmm. Facebook, LinkedIn, <laughs> whatever it is, it affects every single person. And <laughs> It's a source for news in itself. How do you think that impacts upon true journalists, the journalists going out, digging, answering questions, doing their searches, company searches? How have you managed to cope with that aspect? Uh, well, social media, it's another tool. It's a way of gathering information, of course. So a very useful tool in that way, as well as in distributing news. Social media, of course, has been a, a great challenge to the, the media industry. But I, I think we're just beginning to, to see people returning to mainstream media organisations, looking for trusted sources of news. That's what we try to do at the SCMP, is to provide news that is substantiated and can be relied upon. So much information out there, lots of misinformation, disinformation. It's so very important that the media is able to provide trusted sources of news. That's interesting. Now, turning a little bit back to your interest in law, I note that you got a master's degree in human rights law from the University of Hong Kong in 2005. You're also an honorary lecturer at Hong Kong News Journalism and Media Studies. You to go into a little bit of academia. Do you ever have any aspirations of putting that wig on your head <laughs> or becoming an academic in this area? Well, it has been suggested to me, and I have thought seriously about it in the past, but at heart, I've always been a journalist. What prompted the, the legal studies uh, was really, as a journalist, I wanted to be able to talk to lawyers on their own terms. I didn't want lawyers to be able to pull the wool over my eyes by resorting to legal jargon. I, I wanted to have a good understanding, a formal understanding of the law. And I, I didn't go to university in the UK. I had a place. I gave it up because I got the job at the Old Bailey. So it was quite a thrill for me to go to Hong Kong U and to start studying law. And it did come in very useful. I remember uh, interviewing uh, a government lawyer. He started talking about Pepper and Hart. And yes. I knew all about Pepper and Hart <laughs> because <laughs> I'd studied it. And so that was exactly the uh, the sort of benefit I was hoping for, was being able to sort of come back when we were yeah. discussing. Just for our <laughs> listeners, Pepper that. and Hart was a very famous case on how to interpreting um, statutes <laughs> and the intent and the literal meaning or not the literal meaning and what you can use. So that's good. So you're able to enjoy yourself doing that. Now, I read your weekly column and you seem to be a passionate advocate of the rule of law. And each week, 
Sunday mornings, that's the first thing I go to. And <laughs> headlines are, Article 23 must not restrict the rights unnecessarily. You wrote about Nobel Peace Prize highlights the importance of press freedom. You have a wonderful headline, Carrie Lam's policy address needs to show qualities of a leader. A time of change is instructed to reflect on the past. Last week's headline, Uplifting the Marathon, reflects the true spirit of Hong Kong. And you're writing quite robustly. Your views are, I would say, interesting and different. Now, what are you up to? What brought you into doing this? Well, I've had a weekly column for, it's coming up for a year now. And that's quite a discipline. I mean, you've got to come up with something each week to write about. I try in that column to express myself in a rational and, and reasonable way. I think these days, and you've talked about social media, we get a lot of extreme views. And I stand up for what I believe one country, two systems should be. And that includes Hong Kong protecting human rights, having a robust media, being an international city, having an independent judiciary, upholding the rule of law in the true sense of the, the rule of law, which again brings us back to you know, protecting our rights. So I'm expressing my views freely, as I have done for many years. Right, and it's very important for the fourth estate to be there, setting out the views to protect, you know, people's rights as well. And you are a staunch defender of press freedom. You've written about that a lot. You've always said that. And are you concerned about press freedom here in Hong Kong? Yes, in, in a word. I, I think the environment in Hong Kong, the political environment we know, has changed since the introduction of the, the national security law. We also hear officials talking about a fake news law being on the way. We have more national security laws under Article 23, which may affect the, the media. We're seeing access to government databases tightened up, which makes it more difficult for journalists to, to do their job. So there are concerns. And Hong Kong, all the time that I've been here, has had a very robust media scene. I think it continues to do so, and, and long may that be the case. I mean, we have been, as I've said in my column, a beacon for press freedom in, in this part of the world, in Asia. And it's very important that journalists are allowed to continue to get on with their job. And during the 2019 protests or troubles, as people call it, what was it like for the Morning Post? And were there any particular difficulties that your team had in covering the disturbances and reporting honestly and openly? Uh, it was very labour intensive, I think, particularly for our local news team and credit to them. These events developed quickly. Our journalists were working in very challenging, sometimes dangerous circumstances, working very long hours. And it is really a, a credit to them, I think, that we were able to provide our readers with very up-to-date information on these fast-moving events. One of the things that we did was to have a live blog, which traditional reporting was very difficult because things were moving so quickly and in many different parts of Hong Kong. The fastest way of conveying these developments to readers was in that form of a live blog. And, and that was very popular, seemed to be, to be well received. And so far as the political divisions in Hong Kong, I mean, our, our job is not to be swayed by politics one way or the other. We try to be objective and fair. And during the course of those difficult times, we were variously accused of, of being yellow or being blue, both at the same time, which suggests to me we were probably doing the right thing.
That's good. The Foreign Correspondents Club, I know, is very dear to your heart. The first yes. club you probably joined when you arrived in <laughs> Hong Kong. You're a governor, and for our listeners, that means a, a director on the board. I believe the FCC is very important, and it faced some issues not so long ago during the aftermath of the disturbances. Tell us a little bit about your role on the FCC and how that helps you in your position with the SCMP. I'm a journalist governor, which means I I sit on the board. It means I I get to spend some time at the club, which is is great because the club, first and foremost, is a fine place to go for a glass of wine or for something to eat, perhaps a nice curry, to meet people, meet interesting people. And so in that sense, I I always see it as a home from home for our members, a place where journalists can go and work. But the FCC is more than just a location for eating and drinking, of course. It has an important role to play in in Hong Kong in speaking up for press freedom and for the profession of journalism, supporting journalists, and also in providing a platform for debate of issues which are important to Hong Kong and to the region. It's been very difficult during the pandemic, of course, when we couldn't have our usual live events. And so we went online and we were doing through Zoom we had panellists and, and guests, so we, we managed to keep those debates going. But thankfully now we are back with live events too. And we are a platform for many different views. Anyone who comes to speak, we've recently had a Regina Yip, for example, Cheng Huan recently. Yeah, they can be expected to be subjected to some tough questioning from our members. Cheng Huan said he was told that he would be eaten for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he rather enjoyed his lunch, actually. But Well, I always enjoy the lunches and now they're back on us. Actually, very, very difficult to get a place because it's so popular with your members. <laughs> yes, it is. Anyway, you mentioned COVID-19, the pandemic. Is there any frustration within your newspaper, within your fellow journalists as to the government's strategy or is there general support for the zero COVID help? What's your views on that? I've been blogging about that a little bit. My personal views have changed as the pandemic has sort of taken hold and evolved. Initially, when I first heard about this, I remember one of the senior editors dashing across the newsroom and saying there was a SARS-like illness in Wuhan and immediately thinking, oh no, you know, here we go again because I was here during SARS. So at, at first I thought this was going to be like SARS all over again, where there would be a high death rate and where things would be very tough for a few months, but then it would burn out and go away. Of course, it hasn't turned out like that at all. So initially, I think we needed to adopt a cautious approach. And I watched the events in the UK with some alarm in the early days. And yet we were here in Hong Kong with our mask and being very careful and sort of shaking our heads at at that time. But I think things have changed now. We know a little more uh, about COVID with the vaccinations. And uh, I feel frustrated by the zero case approach. I haven't been out of Hong Kong since 2019. Don't know when I will next see my younger son who is is studying in in the UK. So I I feel now in in Hong Kong, we are too risk averse in tackling the pandemic. And I, I understand that the objective now is opening the border with the mainland. And in order to do that, there are requirements that have to be met. But I wonder about Hong Kong's role as an international city, international travel. I think we have to take care of that as well. On a lighter note, I know you took part in last week's Hong Kong Marathon. We did the 10K. That's How right. was that experience? How it was, was it? great. It was great. You finished? Oh, yes. Time? Uh, time was 51.07. Respectable. Yeah, so it's a bit off my personal best, but it's October. <laughs> it was quite warm. 
the sun came out. I was nursing a calf injury, so I was glad just to finish. I particularly wanted to run this time. In the past, the 10-kilometer race has been on the Eastern Island Corridor, which I always enjoy. It's very early in the morning. But at this time, we got to run through the Western Harbour Tunnel, run along the harbour side through Central all the way to Victoria Park. And the atmosphere was really great. I mean, it was a joy to be part of a mass event like that again. Well, that's great. And of course, you have mentioned before, you are a keen football follower, Arsenal (laughs) fan. I'll let you get away with that. Are you still playing football? Sadly not. I reached a stage where I did a lap of honour if I got through 90 minutes without getting injured. So running is a little easier in that regard. But I've never formally hung up my boots. Maybe I should dust them off and You should do, because I referee the football here as well. You mentioned you've got your teenage sons and you've been in Hong Kong for 27 years. Now, do you see your long-term future here? Is this your home? I've never actually seen my long-term future here. <laughs> I've been here 27 years. Like most people, I I thought I would be here for a couple of years and Hong Kong has been wonderful and offered me great opportunities. And I'm still here and still here for the foreseeable future. That's good. And your thoughts on Hong Kong's future? Our city is changing. Are you optimistic? Does that have an impact upon you at all? I've always been optimistic about Hong Kong, but I am troubled by the events of the last two years and the direction Hong Kong is now taking. I think one country, two systems, the two systems part is clearly very important. Hong Kong is a vibrant, open, international city and it's very important that continues. Clearly, we have been through some extraordinary times with the protests in 2019, the national security law. An optimistic view, perhaps, is that maybe this will settle down and perhaps we can get back to times which are a little less politically sensitive. There doesn't seem to be much sign of that at the moment. But longer term, I do have some concerns about whether Hong Kong is going to retain that special quality as a special part of China, which makes it different to the mainland. Cliff, thank you so much for being our guest on Law & More. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you. Thank Thank you. you very much. Pleasure. You've been listening to Law & More, brought to you by Bose Cohen & Collins. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. For more legal news, opinion, and updates, please visit bosecohencollins.com, or you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on our next episode.